Romans, Romans, church, Romans. I got a lot to cover here this morning. Give me a little patience. Give me a little grace. I'm taking you to one o'clock. Hmm. D said, whatever, dude, whatever. I'm out of here when I'm out of here. <clears throat> you okay, brother? Yeah, you. No, no, don't look around you. Bad hair day, I see, huh? You don't got your gel on today. <laughs> he said, don't pick on me, don't pick on me. Romans, Romans chapter 8, verse 29 through verse 33. 29 through verse 33. When you have it, please say amen. And I'm going to challenge you, if you have it, I want you to stand. If you have it, I want you to stand. Okay, amen. Amen. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who should bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. And we pray that you may, you may give us the wisdom from this particular text and passage. That you may flood our hearts with understanding. That you may reveal truth to us here today. That we may have an encounter with you. And that ultimately, Lord God, that it may enhance, that it may nurture our faith. So that we may be the children of God that you have called us to be. We thank you for these things and we pray in Jesus' name. And the church says, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. This is indeed a very important passage of Scripture. And the reason why, there are so many reasons why this passage is important, right? But one of the main reasons is because in this particular passage, Paul takes the time to explain to us the process of salvation. And in my view, he seems to cover many, many different aspects of that process of salvation or many, many layers of the subject. From God's mindset before our creation to our eventual glorification in heaven. With almost everything in between, Paul the Apostle talks about it in this particular passage. We're going to see that unfold in just a few moments. The theme of this passage is election. We're going to get to the definition of that word in a few moments. But as you think about this passage, I want you to think about that. The theme is election. That is the term used in the text for salvation. In short, this text gives us profound understanding of just how intimately involved God is in our lives. There are a lot of people, and it's important to take note of that, because there are a lot of people, a lot of of different religions, for example, that 
that do not believe that the God of the Bible is a personal God. How many of you believe here this morning that our God is an intimate God, that he is a personal God, and that he is, in fact, involved in our lives? He's a personal God. According to Scripture, he longs for our salvation. Look up at the screen, you'll see these verses. If you want to write down some verses, we've got a lot of material here for you uh, in PowerPoint, thanks to Mr. Gutierrez. Not Mrs. Gutierrez, Mr. Gutierrez. Hmm. He rejoices when his children move on from this life. And I want you to, I want you to take note of that one particular verse Psalms 116.15, I'm not going to read it to you. Put it down on your notes uh, because it's a special verse. And you may not necessarily be able to wrap your mind around that at first, but I want you to look that verse up when you get an opportunity. Not right now because I want you to follow along. God delights in the death of his saints. He is not willing that any should perish. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 um, Psalms 149 verse 4 teaches us that God takes pleasure in the lives of his people. Psalms 22 verse 3 teaches us that God inhabits the praises of his people. The point of that is that God indeed is involved in our lives and in a very intimate way. How many know that here this morning? So as we prepare to consider this particular passage this morning, there's one thing that I need you to urgently bear in mind. You ready? Let me have your attention. I know you're writing now. Take a picture of the screen if you want to. There's something about this passage that you must, must urgently bear in mind. And that is, the interpretation of this text will be determined by whether or not you believe in free will. I'm not saying that you have to believe in free will. That's not what I'm, I'm, I'm propagating here this morning. But that free will, the notion of free will, is the major subject here. It is the determining factor. Someone once referred to it as the great divide. It has split the conversation of salvation into two major groups. Those who believe in it, and those who do not. Therefore, my goal here today is simply to consider the topic of salvation, or according to the theme, the topic of election, the theme of election, and to some degree enter into this debate that exists concerning free will or free moral agency. Now, there are two things that I want to do right now before we dive into the passage. I want to, I want to pose a, a few questions. I want you to think about these questions. I have them. I will have them in the next few moments on the screen. I want you to think about these questions. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you all of my points to my message in advance. And I want you to see them up on your screen. The first question I want you to think about as we go through this lesson is what is foreknowledge? I'll say this again a little bit later. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this one particular point because we talked about that extensively last week. Second question, what is election? Thirdly, what is predestination? Number four, is election unconditional 
or is it determined by our response to the gospel message? Number five, does God want everyone to be saved? These questions or the answers thereof will indeed come up in this particular passage. Number six, does the Bible teach free will? Number seven, for whom did Jesus die? This is an important question. Now again, this subject of election is extremely comprehensive, and I do not pretend to have all the answers, right? And I'm, there's no possible way that I can give you all the answers here in this one session at all. So there's some things that you may want to hear that you just, you probably won't for the sake of time. And lastly, is the sovereignty of God somehow violated by our belief in free will or by the belief in free will? And if not, how do we reconcile the sovereignty of God with free moral agency? It's a valid question because it's the question that's, that's being debated over uh, by theologians today, and it's been happening for hundreds of years. And that debate is not going to end today simply because I get to give you my two cents, right? Now, here are my points that I'm going to be presenting today. Number one, God chose his elect in advance. We're going to talk about this in a few moments. God chose his elect in advance. Number two, God set forth a destiny for his elect. God sent, set forth a destiny for his elect. And number three, at the appointed time, he called his elect. We're going to discover that in verse 30. Number four, he declares his elect righteous. He declares his elect righteous. That's verse 30 as well. And lastly, he glorifies his elect. Verse 30. Now look to your text. Look at verse 29. This is where we are going to begin. Verse 29, or the first portion of verse 29 reads, For, who, for those whom he foreknew. Right there. For those whom he foreknew. And the first point that I have for you this morning is God chose his elect in advance. And again, as I stated already, I can't possibly spend too much time here. Um, although I have some, some things that I do want to share with you. Um, let me draw your attention to, the, to the, our website where we posted last week's sermon, where I spent a lot of time on this particular subject. We know that the theme of this particular passage is salvation. But let me submit to you that in order to truly appreciate the subject, there are some things that we have to understand about God. At the very least, some very basic things that we have to understand about God. And this particular portion, this clause from verse 29, it helps us to understand that. And that is, we learn that God has a unique ability to see the end from the beginning. I've got that up in your screen. We learn that God indeed, He has this unique ability to see the end from the beginning. Paul, in this particular passage, the operative term here is foreknowledge. Paul uses the word foreknowledge in reference to God. Now remember the point that I just presented. God chose his elect in advance. And then the, the statement that I have on the screen right below that, that says a lot about God. God knew in advance. He had some information in advance about his 
elect, about his children, about those who would be saved. Therefore, the general idea is this. The general idea regarding salvation is that God knew long ago who, in fact, would experience salvation. But unfortunately, this term for knowledge in this particular passage, it's just, it just doesn't give us all the answers about salvation, about how salvation comes to pass in our lives. Now, I know personally, I won't get into this too much, but I know personally that there are many the, theological perspectives, to say the least, that have sort of hijacked this term and make this term mean things that it just doesn't mean. It just simply means, what is the definition of the word? It simply means that God knew beforehand, that God had information. He knew in advance who indeed would be saved. It means foreknowledge, to foreknow. Next question is, the next logical question that is, is what is election? It doesn't come up in this particular verse, verse 29. It comes up in verse 33. Look at verse 33 in your Bible. Look at verse 33. It says, who shall bring, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? We're going to discuss that in a few moments. But in my view, election is a word that refers to those who would be saved. I'm going to say that again. Election is a word that refers to those who would be saved. It is the position a believer is granted in Christ Jesus. Or it can be viewed as a choosing by God through His Son. A choosing by God through His Son. You, you need to understand that because if you are saved, then God has elected you to be saved. He has chosen you to be saved. Further along in the lesson, we're going to discuss some things in terms of how this transpires in our lives. But it's important to note that we've been chosen by God. It's the idea that Jesus died in our place long ago, right? So that he may in turn offer eternal life to those who would receive him. It's the idea that long ago Jesus died for our salvation... He died for the sins of mankind so that in turn he may offer eternal life to those who would receive him. In other words, election is a provision received in Christ Jesus. We cannot be saved any other way. There are many religions that exist on the world stage today. All you have to do is just listen to Oprah just a little bit. And you get the impression that there are many ways to get to heaven. So it's important. I know that I'm preaching to the choir so far, but it's important to make these points. Because many of us do not necessarily understand how God brings to pass His salvation in our lives. How does it, how does it all work? Are there other avenues? Are there other means to be saved? And the bottom line is no. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. If you don't have Jesus, then you don't have salvation. And if you don't have salvation, you are not the elect. You are not in the fold. You are not in the body of Christ. The world needs this message today. Especially right now. The way things are in society today. But the question still remains concerning this passage. Is election 
an arbitrary decision on the part of God who is determined by our willful choice to put our trust in Jesus. I said last week that I'm not trying to get into any polemic, any issues, right? But that is the question on the table on both sides. Theologians are discussing whether God theistically determined or arbitrarily chooses us to be saved or free will exists and we chose Jesus Christ and that's why we are saved. That is an age-old debate that's taking place right now. And to some degree, we need to look at this. Here's another question that I want to ask as we move forward. Does the Bible teach free will? The debate is centered around free moral agency. So therefore, the logical question is, does the Bible teach free will? And I believe that it does. I believe election is defined as God choosing us in Christ because he knew we would receive him. That's how I reconcile it in my mind. And it's not a difficult thing. And not in my mind. It's not rational. I give you that much. That much. It's not rational. But it's not supposed to be rational. We're supposed to receive salvation in faith. What seems to be rational is acceptance of the idea that God arbitrarily chose us. That God arbitrarily chose us. To be saved, but there's a problem with that in my view. Again, and I'm not trying to change anybody's mind here today. I'm just simply conveying this is the passage we're working with, and I'm just simply conveying what I believe. There's a problem with believing in the arbitrary act on the part of God. We cannot ignore what appears to be a lot of evidence, a lot of information in the Bible concerning free moral agency. Here's a verse that I want you to look at. I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 33. I want you to see this with me. I don't think we covered this last week. I think this is a new passage. But I want you to see this. And by the way, as you're looking for this passage, um, it's not a principle that applies only to the Old Testament. Because Jesus Christ proclaimed the message of repentance in the New Testament as well. All the disciples, all the apostles proclaimed a message of Repentance. Evangelism was what it was in the first century because of the message of repentance. The idea was to lead people to the cross. Ezekiel 33, you there? It says, so to them, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? That's a proclamation in the Old Testament, but it is also a proclamation in the New Testament as well. Does it seem to imply free will? Absolutely. In my mind, it does. In the Ezekiel passage, but I want you to make another note of this in your mind or in your notes. I want you to note that in this passage... God actually held man responsible for his actions. He held man responsible for this action. And this is something that you infer from free, moral, from free will or free moral agency. That God holds us responsible. If free will doesn't exist, then God's responsible for everything that exists in the world today. Including the decisions that we make on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. 
and that the blight, the moral blight that I may find myself in today, exists because God intended it to exist. And that I'm not responsible for it. He is. And so, in my mind, in my mind, how could God address himself to mankind the way that he did in this particular passage, Ezekiel 33 verse 11, if we are not responsible for sin? If God arbitrarily chooses us, then he arbitrarily chooses who gets to live in sin. Or if God theistically or deterministically chooses who's going to be saved, then he chooses who is to be damned as well. Then how could he judge us in the future when we stand before him? How, he, how can he justify condemning people to hell if he chose them in the first place? That's just how my mind operates around this subject. And it is part of the debate. And it's an interesting debate. And I challenge you to look into it. Because you're not supposed to blindly and ignorantly just simply accept what you hear from the pulpit. Because I could be wrong. I could be wrong. So, I want you to look at verse 29 again. Because we've got to move on. Verse 29. It says, For those, whom, for those, those he foreknew... He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. For those he foreknew, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. This point is God set forth a destiny for his elect. God set forth a destiny for his elect. And the operative term here in this particular verse is predestination. It's connected to the word or to the, to the thought of election, but they're not the same. They don't mean the same thing. I know that there are many people who make them out to be the same thing, but they're not. Election, listen to this. Election has to do with choosing, as in who is to be saved, as in who is going to be saved. Predestin, ha, predestination has to do with what future the elect will have. And there are people on both sides of the aisle that actually agree on that statement. It's not my own statement, by the way. Predestination has to do with what future the elect will have. Election has to do with who is to be saved. Election is about the person. Predestination is about the destiny of that person. Just think of the word itself. Predestination. Predestination. It's about a destiny. It's about a future destiny of those whom God chooses to be saved and God determined it in advance. I know so far I sound like a, a Calvinist, right? But it'll, it'll unfold. I want you to listen to this quote by a theologian by the name of Dake. If you want to look him up, D-A-K-E. Dake. D-A-K-E. Quote, it is God's plan that he has foreknown and predestinated, and not the individual conformity of wills to the plan. He has called all men, and all are free to accept or reject the call. All who do accept, he has foreknown and predestinated to be conformed to the image of his son, that his son might be the firstborn among many brethren. Those who reject the plan... He has foreknown and predestinated to be consigned to eternal hell as an everlasting monument of his wrath on rebels. Here's another quote 
The author here is unknown. Foreknowledge of free will decision does not change the fact that it was a free will decision in the first place. We often try to apply, apply rationality when we study the scriptures. Um, and rationality is earthly, it's sensual, it's devilish. That is James chapter 3. And we cannot apply rationale to the word of God. We have to understand that in faith, and the reality is, we don't have all the answers in scripture. We just don't. So that's why I tell you up front, listen to all perspectives. Because I could be wrong. In predestination, the final destination is heaven. Until then, he has planned out, we're talking about predestination. Until then, God has planned out or predestined things for us to experience or things to occur in our lives. Number one, forgiveness. In God's predestination plan way back in the beginning concerning his elect he planned for us to experience forgiveness of sin redemption identity purpose sanctification and sanctification is a lifelong ongoing process he predestined the indwelling of the holy spirit so everything that has to do with Christianity, with Christendom, and our experience as believers, God predestined it long ago, before the foundation of the earth. But even after presenting this point to you, the question still remains, was it, is election arbitrary on the part of God, or do we get to choose? The question is still on the table. Now I want you to think about, just don't look at them. I'm going to read them to you. And these verses just simply have to do with predestination. With things like sanctification and the Holy Spirit. And by the way, even trials and tribulations were predestined. Because God brings about change in our lives through difficult circumstances. I experienced that my best day, my, the, the, the enhancement of my faith, in my daily, day, my daily walk with Jesus Christ, when I'm growing, when I'm developing, it's happening when I'm going through difficult times. Like when my wife is, is just... No? The women are not going to support her on that one? Alright, all I'll, I'll move on. I'll move, I'll move. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies... As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 3. And this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God concerning you, your sanctification. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And Hebrews 12, 14, they're on your screen. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. In those verses, it seems as if, at least in my view, that free will is implied. We are asked to make decisions. We are 
asked by God himself to follow the leading and instructions of the Holy Spirit. And then to be responsible with the decisions that we make. So free will or free moral agency does not teach that there won't be any consequences. On the contrary, I have to live with my decisions. And if I make some bad decisions, there are going to be some bad consequences. And I have to be willing to navigate myself through it in faith and trust in God to preserve or to, to cleanse me, to deliver me and everything else. Now, <clears throat> let's look up a few passages on predestination. I want you to work with me here. I want you to go to Acts chapter 4. I want you to see some passages here. And in the beginning, it's probably going to sound as if God choosing us is arbitrary, but wait to the end. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. It says, For truly, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, by the way, I want to stop there. By the way, this is a prayer by the disciples who were gathered together. There was a prayer, and they were all praying together. And according to the book of Acts, according to Luke, this is what they, not he or her, but this is what they were saying. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. Now, I chose this particular passage to show predestination. But notice that all three doctrines are, doctrines are actually represented in this particular text. Predestination, election, and foreknowledge. They are all right here. For example, look at the text. In verse 28, predestination comes up. A quote, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined. Now, the emphasis here is on the plan of God, right? Because that's what predestination refers to, the plan of God, in my view. Now, secondly, um, election is represented by those who were chosen to carry out the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And in that verse... Those who are praying are talking about Pontius Pilate, King Herod, Gentiles, many Gentiles, and many Jews. They were all involved in the process of making the decision to crucify Jesus Christ. Foreknowledge is inferred in the text. I give it to you. Foreknowledge is inferred from the text. Luke implies that God knew in advance what would take place. Luke implies... That God knew in advance what would take place. And in my view, who would be willing to reject Jesus? Who would be willing to reject Jesus? Not that God arbitrarily chose these individuals against their will, if there were any will, to actually play out that particular role. But that God knew in advance... God knew in advance who would reject Jesus, and so he positioned them, predestination, according to his plan, to bring about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, it may not necessarily be a view that you are accustomed to. I, I, give, you, I give you that. 
I, I know that I'm treading on, on thin ice here. Because my view, I understand this, my view, is, it, it probably places me in the minority in, in, this, in the fellowship of Grace Brethren Church. I understand that. But I, gotta, I can't give you what I don't believe. I got to give you the passage as I believe it. Now I want you to go, I want you to see something. Ephesians chapter 1. Go to Ephesians. Now those, I know that this is typically a Calvinist passage, but I want you to look at something with me. And I want you to follow along with me. Be a little patient. Ephesians chapter 1. Say amen if you have it. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1. Now I want you to look at verses 4 and 5. Now remember, we're talking about predestination and the emphasis is on the plan of God. Not on individuals. The emphasis is on the plan of God. The verses read, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will. Now, did you recognize the phrases in, that, in those two verses associated with predestination? I'm going to give them to you. That we should be holy and blameless. And secondly, adoption to himself as sons. And by the way, parenthetically speaking, if you look at verse 4, if you look at the, the beginning of verse 4, you will see election. Election and predestination are not the same thing. The beginning of verse 4 reads, even as he chose us in him. That's election. And then the plan concerning the elect, adoption as sons, etc., that's predestination. Now I want you to go to the next verse. Not the next verse. I want you to jump a couple of verses. Look at verse 7 here. Ephesians 1 verse 7. It says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. Did you notice predestination there? Predestination, or the plan of God, is redemption. He planned our redemption in Christ Jesus. And secondly, he planned our forgiveness, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Now let's move on for the sake of time. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. In whom we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Did you pick up the reference there to predestination? Quote, obtained an inheritance. Because that's what predestination refers to. The plan of God in the lives of the elect. But the question still remains. Is, it, is predestination or election an arbitrary choosing on the part of God? Or is choice involved in the matter? We still haven't covered that, right? Now I want you to look at the next verse. Uh, verse 13, rather. Because here, I believe, this is where free will is represented. Ephesians 1.13, it says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, was sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Does that imply choice of free will? Not sure, maybe? Let me give it to you in the NIV. Because the NIV settles it in my mind. Right there, makes it, makes it plain, makes it clear. And I'm going to read it to you. And you also were included in Christ. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth. What's it talking about? It's talking about election so far. When you heard the gospel, the message of Christ, 
and you respond that you will include it in Christ. Where am I? I lost my place. You were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the, the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Can we infer safely free will from this particular text? I believe hands down that we absolutely can. I believe we can. Choice. I believe that's what it comes down to at the end of the day. And that just because I have free will to choose Christ, and God knew that in, my, in, in advance, doesn't necessarily mean that free will doesn't exist. The idea is if we went a little bit deeper with this topic of election, I don't have it in front of me, and I just didn't want to present it because it's just too complex. Too complex for me. I give you that. It's too complex for me. But I believe it, the way that I marry the two together is that, God knew in advance that I would select him, that I would choose him, that I would say yes to the gospel message. He knew that in advance. In my mind, it doesn't mean that he chose me arbitrarily in advance. He knew in advance that I would choose Jesus. It doesn't have any bearing on, on, on my security because I believe in the eternal security of the elect. Absolutely. Absolutely do. But it doesn't mean that just because I believe in eternal security that I must denounce free will. Because there's evidence all over the Bible for free will. That's just how I see it. I am a professing non-Calvinist. But I believe in election. I believe in choice. I believe in security. I believe in all those wonderful things. Look at verse 30 again. It says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. I'm almost done. And those whom he predestined, he also called. This third point is, at the appointed time, he called the elect. At the appointed time, he called the elect. Now, I want to give you the Greek word for this term, called. It's kaleo. It's up on your screen. Kaleo. I don't, not even sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And it means to bid, to call, and to invite as by name. To invite as by name. This, this refers to the precise moment when the elect were saved. When you and I were saved. When those before us were saved. And certainly, absolutely, when those behind us will be saved, the precise moment when we were saved. This is when the Lord began to directly deal with us as individuals, as in His promise toward us. The Bible teaches from cover to cover that God is love, that God loves us, and that He's not willing that any should perish, and that at one point He presents all mankind with an invitation to be saved. Not some, that He presents the invitation for salvation to every soul who has ever walked the planet of the earth. Does it mean that everybody is going to be saved? No, that's universalism. I don't believe that. In no way, shape, or form. Romans chapter 1 gives us a glimpse into this. Because we often like to use the excuse or the, I don't know, the, the idea that, 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 that there are indigenous places in this world or, or, or individuals on this planet who, who have never heard the gospel. And what about them? 
How is God going to justify saving them or not saving them or whatever the case might be? And the, Romans 1, Paul the Apostle, he answers that in that passage. He says that nature itself, everything around us that God has created, it declares the glory of the Lord. You cannot deny intelligent design when, when you consider the complexity of life all around you. With God's fingerprint on everything. The naked eye. Absolutely ingenious. Perf- perfection. My hands, these fingers, and the way that we can utilize our hands. And everything that functions in our bodies the way that it does. If I removed your big toe, you would lose, you would virtually lose your ability to exercise. If I remove your big toe. <laughs> Mark said, don't do it. Don't do it, Rick. I won't do it, Mark. I won't do it. He said, don't do it. We need every member in our body. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. I, look, um, I'll read it to you. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. Because it deals with this, this particular point. At the appointed time, he called the elect. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.9, put that on your notes. It says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the idea there is, that, as I presented already, that God loves us. He loves us so much that he compelled himself to offer all mankind an opportunity to be saved. Therefore, his calling begins with an invitation. Acts chapter 2 verse 38. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. His calling begins with an invitation. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And there are so many other passages that reflect this invitation. When John the Baptist, when John the Baptist showed up on the scene, he said, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus Christ showed up just a short time later, and he says, repent, you must be born again, John chapter 3, verse 3. You must be born again. Arbitrary or free will, free moral agency. It begins with an invitation, our election. And one day it's going to end with these words. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Matthew 25, verse 23. Did I get that right? 25, 23. It's not up there, Dave? There it is. Matthew 25, 23. Now look at verse 30 again. Because i got to finish. i got to finish. I know it's 20 after. Let me finish. I want to finish. Look at verse 30. It says, And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he called, he also justified. And by the way, if I can just back up for a moment, do not take your calling, your calling for granted. Do not take your salvation for granted. I think it's heinous to do so. I think it's the, there's nothing, nothing more, nothing worse that we could ever be, that we can possibly ever be guilty of 
than that, than to take for granted God's calling upon our lives. It's the reason why billions one day are going to be hurled into the lake of fire, because they took for granted their calling. You know how many times God called me before I actually went to prison? How many times he tried to rescue me? Not family members, because I'm first generation Christian, but friends in the community, the church in the community. They will come out, they will come out in little, in little carts with popsicles, or we call them pastelillos. You call them beef patties. We call them pastelillos, you know, the hot food that you eat. Pastelillos or beef patties. And the church will come around in these little carts with little ovens inside of them. And they come out to the corner without any fear whatsoever. And we'd buy all of them, whatever their shish kebabs or whatever they had, they had in that little car. And we'd buy it all up. They knew that we would purchase it. And in that process, they displayed the love of God. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. And there were times when I did not know what to do with my thoughts, my feelings, and my emotions. I didn't understand it at all. But I was like an ostrich with my head in the ground at the time. God was calling. At one point or another, he calls us. And in this point here, it says that, the verse again reads, And those whom he called, he also justified. What does that mean? The point four is he declares his elect righteous. This is, in effect, the transformation which, which takes place immediately in our lives upon receiving Jesus. And I don't mean this to be funny, so don't take it to be, to be funny at all. But it's like taking a homeless person off the streets burning all of his belongings, giving him a chemical bath, and then placing new clothing on his body, but only better. And the reason why I put that in there is because I remember when I was first hurled into a prison cell. In fact, before that, when I first entered the institution, they took everything I owned away from me. They took my clothing off my back, and they got rid of them. I never saw them again. And they stuck me in this really small makeshift shower. It's like a booth where you couldn't even move around. This hot water came down on top of you. They poured chemical all over your body so that you don't bring lice or uh, lice. I said lice. Lord have mercy. You don't bring lice into the prison. You don't bring ticks or fleas. You don't bring diseases. And they checked me with a fine tooth comb. You know what I'm saying? To make sure I was clean. So I know a thing or two about that process, right? And, and, and this topic of justification, that's what happens when we come to know Jesus. He takes us everything about us and he just totally cleanses us. He renews us. He makes us perfect. Maybe not in that natural sense. That's why, according to Paul the Apostle, in this eighth chapter, eighth chapter, we are longing for that inheritance, that fulfillment of redemption. We are longing for that. And I can't wait. But on the inside, where it matters the most, it's a done deal. We've been declared righteous. If you know Jesus, it's over. You've been declared righteous. That's a beautiful thing. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Justification means to be declared righteous. Romans 5.1 It is the fundamental component of having peace with God. Romans 3.23 It is the result of having been redeemed. 
Romans 4, 6 through 8, it affords us the label of being called blessed or children of God. And James chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, it establishes us as friends of God. Any friends of God here this morning? Last point and I'm done. I know I got five minutes. I promise you I'll be done in five minutes. Look at the verse again. Look at verse 30. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This point is, he glorifies the elect. He glorifies the elect. This point represents the culmination of the entire election process. From its inception long ago to the final moments of this age, the Lord began a wonderful work in us, right, when we got saved. In fact, He began that wonderful work long ago. And this work, of course, is rooted in the love that He has for us. I think it's First John chapter 5, if I'm not mistaken, that says that God is love, right? God indeed is love and His process is rooted in His love. But the idea is here in this point is that one day He's going to complete this process, one day this is going to be over. I don't have the verse in here. I should have put it in there. But where it says in the book of Revelation, there will be no more tears. There will be no more pain, no more suffering, no more agony, no more nagging, no more issues, no more problem, no more bills. How about that? No more bills. Ron is going to have his perfect hearing back. No more ear Whatever you call those things, none of that is all going to be gone. Victor is going to stand straight up again one day. Everything in my body is going to function the way my wife is not going to bother me anymore. Lord, have, oh, Yolanda, she said, oh, bendito, bendito, bendito. She's like, Pastor, don't do that, don't do that. Happy life, amen. That, I, 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 I kind of... <laughs> Somebody defended her. I was waiting for that. First John chapter 4, verse 14. I'm going to read this to you. I, I want to finish. First John 4, 14. The question is, did he die for everyone? This is how I want to close. Did he die for everyone? Or did he die for some? Is the L of tulip. Five, in five-point Calvinism that teaches that he only died for some. Did he die for everyone? First John 4.14, it says, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Isaiah 55, verse 7, Let the wicked forsake his way. This is God talking here. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. That's choice, free will, moral agency. Let him return to the Lord that they may have compassion, that he, that he, I'm sorry, that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And Revelations 22:17 in the NIV, I like it. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty say, come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Brothers and sisters, it comes down to this. In my mind, it comes down to choice. Always has, always will. 
Luke chapter 7 verse 30. Listen to this. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. God made them an offer to be saved. And Jesus right here says it. And the Pharisees rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Does that imply choice? Free will? I think it does. Stand with me. Uh, let's forego on that song. We're not going to sing the song. We're not going to sing that last song. We're just going to pray out. It's the bottom half of the hour already. I'm sorry for keeping you too long. I want you to bow your heads with me. And think about the text. Think about what you've heard. Believe it. Refute it. Debate it. Talk about it. Dig into it. Find out for yourself what it is the Bible has to say about our salvation. The text is about election. It's about salvation. Find out what the Bible has to say to you about your salvation. We talked about a lot of things here today. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for blessing us with the gift of life. We thank you for election, for predestination. We thank you for your calling. We thank you for justification. And we are looking forward, Lord God, for that time when our bodies will be fully glorified. No more pain. No more questions. No more debates. No more confusion. No more issues. Everything is going to be settled. And as Paul once declared, I'm going to know myself even as I am known by you. Father, thank you for blessing us with salvation. Thank you for blessing us with this place to worship in. We love you and we commit ourselves to you. May you be with us. May you keep us safe and clear of this virus, Lord God. May you heal our bodies. May you use us to be a living epistle to those who do not know Jesus. We know there are a lot of people looking for hope. Help us, Lord God, to give them Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. It is a little after 1230. So when I, I want to ask you to please transition out of the sanctuary. Please. Thank you so much.